Welcome to We Can Be, a Heinz Endowments podcast focused on the driving forces in the social change arena. My name is Michelle Figlar, Vice President of Learning at the Endowments. And it is my pleasure to welcome today's guest, Dr. Kathy Humphrey, the president of Carlo University. In 2021, Carlo University's board named Dr. Humphrey as the first black woman to hold the office of president in the university's nearly century-long history. From spending her childhood days playing school during her leisure time in in Kansas City, Missouri, to leadership positions at St. Louis University, the University of Pittsburgh, and now Carlo University, Dr. Humphrey has truly and deeply dedicated her life to equity in education. She's a nationally respected leader in the educational concept of building the whole student, believing passionately in the importance of students learning not only the subjects they choose to study, but also critical life skills that include social, health, and communication competency. She has endless positive energy, is brilliant yet humble and kind, and is one of the most charismatic leaders in the education realm. I am honored to call her both a colleague and a friend. Dr. Kathy Humphrey, welcome to We Can Be. Thank you. Oh, it's so good to see you. You started right at what was at least like the height of the pandemic. And as you look back on the first year, what was your biggest challenge? What surprised you the most? I was pleasantly surprised by so many things at Carlo. Really? Yes. You know, I've been in this business for 38 years, and I have never heard students collectively talk so favorably about their faculty. So endearing, so warm, you know, how much the faculty care about them, how much the faculty do everything they can to to ensure their success. That was really a pleasant surprise. Then I would say that I was surprised by, you know how most institutions talk about their mission? Mm -hmm. And everybody is committed to their mission. But to hear the mission being fed back to me from students and what they say and how they act was surprising to me because you don't see it bounce back from the students as much. And their commitment and the reason why they selected Carlo, it was just very evident and very, very clear. Carlo was created to provide opportunities for those who otherwise hadn't had opportunities and to to hear the social justice agenda be real was really wonderful for me. So I had a lot of pleasant surprises. But probably the hardest surprise for me was to really understand that the buck really stops with me. Oh, I bet. That was hard. Yeah. And it wasn't hard because I didn't expect it. It feels different. You know, in the past, you know, in all my other jobs, I could say to my supervisor, hey, here's what I think you need to do. This is the best information I could give you. But I'm the person that they give that to. They get to walk away on their merry little way, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not think about it again. I have to sit with it and really make the call. Are we going to do that or are we not going to do that? And when you make that call, you know you're affecting people's lives. That's really hard. 
I've heard stories that you spent time and you still spend time in the cafeteria. You walk around campus, you pop into classrooms. Can you share a story about when you just would pop in? How did the students react to that? I go to the dining room at least once a week. Wow. And just sat down with random students, right? So the first week I went into the dining room and sat down with a group of students, you could see the students thought, Who is this old lady? (laughs) Old lady, stop that. (laughs) Sitting with me. Who is she, right? I would introduce myself so that I just didn't look like this weird person sitting down with them. Once the students expected me to come, it was exciting because every lunch became a focus group, right? I bet. I I just learned. I learned all kinds of things to the point where I think my staff would see me heading toward the dining hall and know that she's going to eat with the students. We're going to have something to do when she comes back. Yeah. <laughs> because they were so insightful and they have a lens on the institution that's very different from those of us who work at the institution. So to know how it feels to be them is really important to me. And I absolutely love students. I love being with them. They give me a lot of energy. They give me a lot of excitement to, to do the work. And so when I'm having a bad day, oftentimes I'll go and pop down and just hang out with them for a few minutes to be re energized because they're the reason why I come to work every day. That's been wonderful. You light up a room, every room, every room you go into. You are the first black woman to lead Carlo University, and Carlo has a progressive equity, diversity-focused mission. I don't know how many of our listeners know that, Mm -hmm. but what is it like for you to be the first black woman? What is it like to implement this vision, to be in charge of this vision, and how can universities fulfill this vision? I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, but I'm getting ready to say it. When I was going through the process of the interviewing I really didn't think about, oh, you're going to be the first black woman. If you get this job, you're going to be the first black woman to do Hmm. it. So it just didn't cross my mind because there's so much to think about before you go into this process, you know, that it didn't click to me until I was called to do another interview. And they said, so Kathy Humphrey is the first black woman to be president of Carla. And I thought, it's true. And then the weight of that sat with me. Mm -hmm. And then I began to get letters from young black women to tell me how important it was for me to be in this space because it said to them, this is possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, it's important. And if I can create a pathway for many others to travel, I can't do anything better than that. I am creating a pathway. I want to make sure I'm not the last black woman or man to be uh, the president of Carlo, but I want to make sure that it is very natural and common for this to occur in this community. So it does mean something to me today, and I am cognizant of it, and I am working on making sure that I provide the kinds of experiences for everyone that I work with every day and those who are going to come after me, that I am doing the kind of work that makes it easier for them to do this work. The trustees, faculty, staff, and students are gathered here today to install the 11th president of Carlo University. The inauguration of Dr. Kathy Humphrey is convened.
It is amazing to see all parts of my life stand and sit before me. There's my sorority sisters and my family right there and my new family right there and my pit families back there and my children are over there and my students are over there. I praise God for all of you today. I was honored to be at your inauguration uh, ceremony. It was beautiful. Thank you. You for were beautiful coming. in the Carlo purple, and to see your sorority sisters, yes. and to see the students and the young women of color just know that you are creating a path for them. Mm-hmm. But I also noticed all this family. <laughs> it was like the room was filled with Humphrey. Nieces and nephews, tell our listeners a little bit about you and and your family. I know your family means so much to you. Yes, yes, yes. So I am the 10th of 12 children, and I have 107 nieces and nephews. Wow. 50 of them were at the inauguration. Yes. (laughs) I had my whole section. So if nobody else cheered, I was going to have a squad there no matter what. My family means everything to me because that's really how I was raised. My parents instilled a sense of family pride and concern for us from very, very young. If you had a disagreement or a a fight with a sibling, my father would always say, and when you wake up in the morning, she's still going to be your sister. (laughs) So you may as well get over it, right? That sense of connection that they insisted on us to have with one another really has really expanded far past the death of our parents. And I think they've got to be proud in heaven for what their children have done. So my parents moved from the deep south to the Midwest Mm -hmm. with the hopes that their children would be able to get an education. Now, remember, this is at a time where Jim Crow is alive and well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my parents are only two generations away from slavery. And Mm -hmm. it's quite something to Mm -hmm. think about. You know, my dad would be 100 if he were alive. And, you know, we always think about slavery being so far away. But the reality is, is that I could touch it. I didn't go to the University of Mississippi because, and I wanted to go there because their gospel choir had come to our church to sing. And I just wanted to be a part of that gospel choir. And my dad said, you will never go to the University of Mississippi because I spent too many days sneaking out of that city so that I was not lynched in the middle of the night. That's a part of my history, this kind of concern about everyday life. But at the same time, my parents were so amazing in how they balanced how we felt about white people. They were really clear, you know, all white people are not bad. Mm. Some white people are really good. So we don't ever want you to think that because somebody looks a certain way that you should treat them a certain way. They were so good about that and really helped me so much with my career because I was a part of the first desegregation plan in Missouri. People on my block were shipped to the white neighborhoods. And so I was the only black child in kindergarten. And it wasn't easy. Our children learn racism very early. And by the time you're five, you're already inundated with it. And so I remember children not playing with me. And I remember sitting on this little wall while the other children played together. And I remember the whispering. (laughs) 
<laughs> but my parents made me stay and they made me climb over that. And I really look back that today in my career, I've been the only black woman in a lot of rooms. Mm-hmm. But for me, you know, oftentimes when we talk about social justice, we don't talk about it in a circular fashion. We talk about social justice just from those who are oppressed. And that's really important. So don't misunderstand me here. But we can't leave white people out of that equation. Social justice has to be a complete circle. I, I often think about the poem from Peter Niemöller, who says, in Germany, they first came from the Jews, and I didn't speak up. The reality is we don't know when it's going to be our turn to sit in the seat of the one who's oppressed. And if we don't learn to speak up when people are not treated fairly, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what they can or cannot do, or who they love or who they don't love, Someday that could be you. And so you have to grow muscles to speak up for those who sit in the seat of the one who is oppressed. That is absolutely beautiful. How do you think this has impacted who you are as an educator, as someone now leading a university? I know that you talk about building the whole student. Mm-hmm. How does that happen at Carlo? It's one of the reasons I go to the dining room. You can look at students as students, or you can look at a student as Jane, Karen, Aisha, Dominique. The moment they become human beings to you, what you will do for them is substantially different. And how you feel about them, substantially different. And what you will insist on how they are treated are substantial. I remember the first week I was there, I said, I need everybody to understand something. These students belong to someone, and that someone happens to be me. Mm-hmm. It is hard to educate the whole student if you're not in tune to them as whole beings. When they leave us, I want them to be well-developed in and outside the classroom. I want them to be able to think critically. I want them to be people who uh, realize that to whom much is given, much is required. You know, I believe only 24% of the population are college educated in this country. We assume, because we hang out with people all the time who are, that we are the majority. We are not the majority. We are the minority. And the reason that you are in an institution of higher education is because you have been given opportunity that many will never get. And you are to take that opportunity and you're to go out and make a difference in the world. Now, I would love for all my students to be rich because then they can get back to Carlo. That's really... (laughs) (laughs) But the reality is, is that more than them being rich, I hope that we've developed them to the point that when they leave, that they want to play a significant role first in their own families. Then in the greater community, and then some of them in the state, some of them in the country, and maybe some of them in the world. But playing a role of significance is our greatest hope for them, and why educating them in and outside the classroom, talking about our mission, you know, our mission of mercy. Mercy meaning having the ability and the desire to walk with someone in the midst of Mm -hmm. their chaos. You know, we know that the national average for the number of undergraduate students who are first in their families to attend college is right around 40%. I don't know if our listeners know how much Carlo actually attends to the first-time college student, right? Yeah. First first, first in their family. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about the student population because I know you're, you are yeah. just passionate about that. So over 40% of our students. Over 40%. 
are first generation. Wow. Over 40%. 27% of our students are non-white. The crowning moment for me for the year was commencement. Mm. During the week, we had events. We had a midnight breakfast, actually, for other students. And uh, so I said to this one student, I said, how would you feel at the commencement if I asked everyone who was the first person in their family to stand up? And she said, "Uh I'm not sure how I would feel about it, but my family would be so excited about it. And at that point, I thought, I'm going to do it. One of the things that makes Carlo special is its commitment to all of our students, especially those students who are in the first generation of their families to graduate from college, or those who are the first in their families to gain a master's or a doctorate degree. Will those students who are first generational please stand? You have changed the course of your families, and your accomplishments will send a message to future generations that a college degree, a master's degree, a doctorate degree is not only possible, but within their reach. Michelle, when 60% of those students stood up, it took my breath away. To hear the roar of the families that have been forever changed because this young person was able to get to the finish line, I can't tell you how it feels to know that you had a part in making a difference in generations. It is the work that we do. And why this is so important to me is because it happened to me. Somebody took a chance on me and made sure I got to the finish line. And it's my turn to make sure thousands more get to the finish line. And I think that's the role for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. To find the person that we can mentor or coach and Mm -hmm. help get them to the next step. I think you showed us that a college student's experience is not just in that classroom, right. right? It's everything that Carlo is wrapping around all of these students. Absolutely. So part of our work here at the Heinz Endowments has been around early childhood education, and we worked with you and your exceptional team to launch an early childhood apprenticeship program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about what that program means to you, what early childhood means to you how many lives are going to be changed because of that apprenticeship program. It's remarkable, Mm -hmm. right? You you are talking about giving opportunities to individuals who, if that program didn't exist, that would be the end of the road for them. It is the difference between them being a renter for the rest of their lives Mm -hmm. and be a homeowner because they gotten a higher level of training. They are able to do more with their education. On the other side, it's an amazing program because the children are going to get a different kind of care. Mm-hmm. Our goal is to create child care centers that are rated as some of the highest child care centers in this country. Because of this program, we're going to be able to make that kind of impact in this city. And I feel just amazing about the kind of care that we give to those children because we understand that children are learning from the moment they leave the wound. Let me just tell, tell one grandson's story, okay? <laughs> so my grandson is seven months old. We put him in a walker saddle. Saturday. And he just kind of moved around a little bit. Yesterday, 
this child is putting one foot in front of the other, moving the walker, and, you know, going in different directions. I thought, how does he know to put one foot in front of the other and to move in a certain direction to get to a certain thing? It's just fascinating how much the brain can do at such an early age. And for that to go untapped is problematic, right? It's a waste of time. This program, educating these students about what a child can do and having them to use that education to really implement it and execute it in that child's life, it's huge. The opportunity to be with early childhood educators and to help them understand and learn Mm -hmm. just the importance of everything they do with Mm -hmm. that baby and with the family, and it's just a critical role Carlo is playing. I'm so happy that you are part of this with us. And you know, that's another piece of that program, too, because it's not just about the babies, it's about those families. It's about the community members who want to come in and learn more about how to develop their children and, you know, with this notion that, you know, if you don't learn how to read by the time you're in third grade, that so many awful things could be a part of your future. It's really important to me, and it really begins at the daycare. Yes. How much vocabulary that child has will really dictate how quickly they'll learn how to read. So it is exciting. For our listeners who don't know, Carlos sits in Oakland, but it also edges right on the Hill District neighborhood. Can you talk to us about what it means, like your sense of place and where Carlo is Mm -hmm. physically located? Mm -hmm. How does that drive who you are as a leader? Not just in Carlo, but a leader for our city. I don't believe that a university can sit in a space and not impact that space. There's two programs that I'm hoping that we can create. One program is a program that they used to have in the Hill District for single mothers that didn't think they could go to college, Mm -hmm. that people kind of had given up on them. I want to recreate that program. I want to be that institution that says, you can do this. You can get a college degree. You can do more than you're doing today. And we're going to help you do that. And I'd like to sit a classroom right in the heel so it's easy for them to come to. And I'd like to do daycare so that they can drop their children off and go to school at the same time so that we can make it easier for them. We are a city that is in desperate need to make some changes, Mm -hmm. to provide some opportunities, to change some lives. And, And one of the women who graduated from that program years ago, they said, you know, I was just sitting home with my children and I wasn't doing anything. And somebody knocked on my door virtually and said, would you like to be in this program? And I started and I'm a college graduate today and all of my children are college graduates. And that's the kind of change that I think we have to be a part of making, not only for the individual, but for our city. The other program that's very important to me that I am really trying to get funding to, to start is to provide opportunities uh, for foster children. Mm-hmm. Only, I believe, 20% of foster children end up in college, and only 3% of them finish. I want to be that institution where they finish. I want to be that institution that has the kind of wraparound services that will really nurture foster children to the point of success. You talk about changing some lives. If you can change uh, the life of a foster child, you really have impacted, you know, my my children were foster children. So I have a great passion for this. And these young people are on their own. Right. And so they need a place to go for 
Christmas, for Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. for spring break, for they need a place to, to be. They need somebody to encourage them. They need somebody to say, hey, how's it going? You know, all the things we've done for our children. Hey, have that Tesco. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine, imagine never hearing, have that Tesco. Or I know you were having problems with so-and-so. How's it going? Imagine living life that way or not having anything underneath you but you. So I want to create that net that system underneath them that will help them to get to the finish line. I read an article about you in the Jewish Chronicle that talked about how important it is for you to experience other neighborhoods. This also helps the students be able to understand how their work is going to impact other communities. You're going to get students Mm -hmm. off of campus. Mm -hmm. Why is that so important? I mean, it's just a unique way to think about the opportunities for the students Mm -hmm. as well. Until you walk in the life of someone else, you don't know them. And you are able to treat them as objects as opposed to human beings. Mm. That's just the way it is. But if you're able to stand in somebody else's shoes, if you're able to create a real relationship with someone who's not like you, and that's really what that's about, having the ability to create real relationships, it's not about just serving, it's not about just helping. You're really helping yourself, right? When I get to know you, how I treat you is different. Yeah, it's reciprocal. It is. It's reciprocal. When, when I get to know you, Michelle, you become more than a white woman. <laughs> You're not just a white woman. You become my friend. Yes. Somebody I care about. That's what I want our students to know about and to be a part of. I wasn't lucky enough to have you as a teacher because, you know, we're about the same age, but <laughs> oh, I so wish sweet. that I would have had a woman. teacher just, I mean, seriously, to have a teacher, teacher like you. Is there a teacher that you think about that guide your work? So Jack Foster was my music teacher. Hmm. Jack was probably the first person in the LGBT community that I was extremely connected to because he told me that I was special, that I could do great things. And not only did he tell me I could do it, he gave me opportunities to do it, to prove to myself that you are somebody special. I think about Jack Mm -hmm. a lot. You know, I'm at a, a predominantly white high school. I'm bust from the black neighborhood there. And here is a white man basically saying, you're somebody. Me? (laughs) You're somebody. And I think that as often as I can to help people understand who they are, to remind people that they are great and amazing is something that I want to be a part of because I know how much it affected me. He was also hard on me, you know. He, he'd also let me know when I was going the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think most of our best mentors are, right? Yeah. Right. He, he was a truth teller. I will always remember him. I have heard that it was clear to you from an early age that education was going to be your calling. I've even heard, I think you told me this, that even when you weren't in school, much of your free time as a child growing up was spent playing school. Absolutely. Playing school was my absolute favorite thing to do as a child. And because I have a lot of siblings and a lot of nieces and nephews, most of the time I could coerce people to play with me, right? (laughs) Now, I don't know if you remember this. When nobody would play with me, 
I would just teach empty chairs. I would sit up <laughs> empty chairs along my bed, and I would teach those empty chairs. This has always been a part of my life, and I always think about that when I'm in the front of a classroom, that the now those empty chairs are filled, and they help me to fulfill the calling that's on my life, and that is to provide other people the opportunity to gain information that makes them find their own callings. Was there a point that you knew that you were going to turn this play into a career? Like, when did you know? I feel like I always, always knew. knew. I don't remember ever a time where I didn't think I was going to be a teacher. I could yes. see it on your face. I yes. wish the listeners could see it because you talking about teaching, it is just in your soul. And mm-hmm. those are the teachers we need for the future. And you know, but that's gosh, why the, we don't treat our teachers really we well. We don't treat do our we? teachers well. And that's why we are struggling to find yes, them. But I yes. think that what COVID did for us is to help us understand the true value of those people who teach our children every day. Absolutely. They are worth so much more right. than what we pay them. I don't think we can pay them enough. Every profession, every profession is because some teacher was a part of their lives at some point and was willing to give to them a part of their lives. And that's what teachers do. Teachers give you a part of their lives. There are not a lot of professions that do that. There are not a lot of professions where people look back and say, I remember Jack Foster. So the name of our podcast is We Can Be. What do you think we as a community, a country, a world, what can we be? I believe we can be better than we are today by leaps and bounds, simply by deciding that we're going to be. If indeed we would become the people that we all aspire to be, people who care about one another, people who are willing to walk into the chaos of others.